Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome to Explore the Space. This is episode number 130, and my guest today is Professor Warren Binford. And Professor Binford is a professor of law at Willamette University in Oregon. She's the director of their clinical law program. And she is an internationally recognized children's rights scholar and advocate, and she specializes in immigration, child, and family advocacy law through the Willamette Law School's clinical law program. And over the last few weeks, she has been one of a handful of attorneys, physicians, and interpreters who have been touring Customs and Border Patrol detention centers along the United States border with Mexico, most notoriously Clint, Texas. And she has been very forward-facing in meeting with the media and meeting with the public to share what she saw, what she learned, and what she heard around what is happening to these children that are in U.S. custody in detention centers like the one in Clint, Texas. This is a conversation that feels important. She is doing incredibly difficult, challenging, and brave work. And I was really struck by her commitment to sharing the horrendous things that she saw, the horrendous things that she heard with the intent of making things better for the children who are at risk and for our nation as a whole. Before we get to the conversation with Warren, you can find the entire archive of the Explore the Space podcast at www.explorethespaceshow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at ETS Show and on Instagram at Explore the Space Show. You can email me, Mark, at explorethespaceshow.com. And you can subscribe and download Explore the Space podcast episodes on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Please definitely take the opportunity to subscribe. And if you feel so inclined, please do leave us a rating and a review. It really helps the show out. I'm very grateful to Professor Binford for taking the time to come on the podcast. She has been doing a ton of media. It's the right work. And she did share with me that this was the first podcast that she had done. And that's something that I really carry as a badge of honor. I'm really proud of that. And I'm really delighted that she found the time and the bandwidth to come and share this conversation and to participate in this ongoing work and this ongoing dialogue so we can hopefully begin to better understand and then fix what is happening to these children in Border Patrol facilities like the one in Clint, Texas. So without further ado, Professor Warren Binford. Warren, welcome to Explore the Space. Thank you so much for taking the time after what has clearly been, I'm sure, a a wild and challenging couple of weeks. So I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you, Mark. You and I spoke a little bit over the last couple of days and having followed the arc of this story of children that are being held in detention centers at the U S border. It's, it's a story that is difficult to wrap the mind around. It's difficult to sort of internalize that this is happening. So I think in order for us to be able to get a sense really at that granular level of what's happening, I'd like to start a little bit further upstream Given your work, given your background and your reputation in specializing in immigration and child and family advocacy, how did this even begin to come about where you were in this work group that actually went to Clint, Texas? How did the, what was the genesis of this? How did this even begin? Well, for, for me, the genesis began 
a few years ago when I was asked to do an inspection of the South Texas Family Residential Center, which is located in Dilly, Texas, and that's the largest family detention center in the country. And uh, honestly, I really didn't want to go because it was just before Christmas and the semester had just ended. But I had a colleague who had been battling cancer and she had tried to organize a trip like this um, where she and her students were going to go down to the border and try and provide legal aid to asylum seekers down there. And she ended up not being able to take that trip. And then she passed away just uh, a, a week or two before I went on the trip. And I thought, I'm going to I'm gonna do this in her honor, even though wow. it was just before Christmas. And even though um, I was, you know, tired from the semester and wanted to spend time with my family and everything. And then the irony was, was that I ran into her wife uh, a couple months later and said something to the effect of, you know, I took this trip down to Texas in Gwen's honor because I know that she always wanted to do that. And her wife said, no, she didn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yes. <laughs> okay, well, I did it anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then, you know, after that um, that first trip to, to one of these uh, centers, I was asked to come back and do some more. And, and so since then, I've been to some pretty high-profile, pretty horrendous places like the Temp City and Tornillo and the Walmart, uh, you know, in Texas. And it just... It's, it's it's really really hard because you go to these places and you see what's happening to these children and their families. But we have a confidentiality agreement, and so you go back home, and you can't tell anybody what you've seen and what you've heard and what the children have shared with you. And so it it makes it really hard to process. So you kind of just push it down deep inside, and you know continue to march forward. That is something that resonates, I think, with. Certainly for myself, sometimes you leave the hospital and you think to yourself, this is something I just, I can't talk about. I'm not going to share this with anyone for a lot of reasons, right? There's patient privacy rules, but also just, I'm not talking about this with anybody. Uh, this is, this is too much. This is too much pain, too much sadness. In terms of the actual, you mentioned though, that there's privacy agreements with this most recent tour that you were able to do in Clint, Texas, it feels like you have been able to express yourself fully. Is there something different or was there a dynamic that was different that allowed you and the other people who went on this tour to have that ability to share as openly and frankly as you have? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, these inspections yeah. have been occurring for over 22 years Okay, and we have never gone to the meeting before. It's always been really, really tight. And if you were to leak anything, you would get kicked off the team and never brought back. And so what happened this time is that the week prior, we had a team who, so first of all, we, we scheduled inspections of a number of Border Patrol facilities in Texas this month because there were children dying on a monthly basis, literally in Border Patrol custody. And we wanted to get a sense of what was going on. And so the week prior, we had a team that I was invited to um, join, but wasn't able to because I was trying to spend time with my family. 
and committed to only being able to do one one week on the border. And they called from down there and they said it was absolutely horrendous. And they had five children that they referred to the hospital because they were in such dire states of medical neglect. And a preemie who was being literally locked up in a cage with its mother who was recovering from a C-section with no medical care, no follow-up, et cetera. And the, the lawyers and the doctor uh, who were down on that team were just beside themselves and decided to go public about that medical care um, and the medical neglect that was going on down there. And then, the, and I didn't even know this at the time. So I was, you know, focused on the facilities that we were going to. And then we got down there and we walked into this facility that was not even a facility where normally children are kept. We did not even have this facility on our radar screen. We got intelligence on the ground the week before that a large number of children appeared to be moving into this facility recently. And this is the facility in Clint, Texas? That's right. The Clint, Texas Border Patrol facility. or It's just the Clint Border Patrol facility in Clint, Texas. So we added this at the last minute, this facility to the last minute, and we weren't sure what we'd find there. And then we walk in and we're handed a roster of over 350 children in this adult facility that only has occupancy for 104. And we're like, what on earth are we walking into? And then we scan the roster and there are literally 104 young children. We see zero, 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 one, one, two, four, two, five, six. And we're like, oh my God. Like, they've got a hundred little kids here, and we've got a sense of what Border Patrol facilities are like. So then we scan the, the, you know, the list even more closely, and we see that there are a lot of child mothers on this list as well who are presumably there with their infants. And so immediately, before we're even able to really analyze the roster, we tell them, bring us the child mothers, their infants, bring us the youngest children and bring us the, um, the children who have been here the longest. And so they did that. And it was unbelievable when the kids walked in. And, and who is, it, just to help us understand, because as you're talking, I'm, I'm just trying to process, I'm trying to sort of see what you're seeing the best that I can. And I can't, but who's they, when you refer to, they called us and said, you need to come in and, and look at this facility. And now it obviously it's a different they. You're reviewing this roster and you're saying to, to somebody or some group of people, you need to bring us these child mothers and these children right now. We need to know who, who are these people who are, first of all, sounding the alarm. And then who are these people that are there? Yeah. So the people who are sounding the alarm are the frontline service providers. So you have NGOs lined up all along the border and they are our allies and they are there on the ground day in and day out trying to help these populations. So these are the doctors, the lawyers, the social workers, the advocates who live and work on the border and, and have their finger on the pulse. So that's the first day. And then the second day is the Border Patrol, that there are generally when we go in for these site visits, um, they have one or two attorneys there to meet us to make sure that the government's legal interests are protected okay. and that we don't overstep our rights. 
And then there are the Border Patrol agents who actually go and get the kids for us and bring them to us in the interview room. At some of the facilities, what the um, the facilities that are run by the Office of Refugee Resettlement, um, they we have rights inspection to those facilities under the the Flores lawsuit, which is the lawsuit that was brought in the 1980s to uh, establish minimal standards of care for children who are in government custody. Um, But the border patrol facilities, we don't have any rights of inspection to because you're not supposed to keep kids there. Everybody knows that like border facilities are really horrendous and that they're, you know, they're not suitable for children. So those facilities, the border patrol facilities, were never included in the inspection rights part of of that lawsuit. So, you know, so we go in and when we see all these kids on the roster and we want to know what's going on, I asked for an inspection, give us a tour of the facility. (laughs) Like this doesn't make any sense. And they insisted that they would not let us see the facility. And they explained to us that they had recently undergone an expansion and that they now had capacity for 600, which we did not see. We couldn't figure out where this expansion was. Um, So at the end of the day, and then I'll go back to what happened when the kids started to come in, but I want to talk to you about the expansion first. So at the end of the day, we drove around the facility trying to figure out where the expansion had taken place. And the only thing that we could find was a large metal warehouse and it had a line of porta potties outside. And we're thinking, Oh my God, is this a joke? Yeah. Like there are no windows on this flimsy metal warehouse. Like, is this their expansion? And it turned out, we found out the next day and interviewing the children and talking to some of the guards off the record that that in fact were where hundreds of children were being kept. So in any event, so the, so we asked the border patrol agents, you know, get us the youngest children, get us the child mothers and their infants and get us the children who had been here the longest. And we normally don't do that. We normally don't give them any discretion about whom to bring to us, but we did it that morning because we were so anxious to see the children because there were so many of them and it was such a young population. And then, you know, after that we did that, you know, while they were going to get the children, we started to do the data analysis and to go deeper into the information that we had about the kids on the roster. And that's when we uh, started to understand how the roster had been organized and that helped to to guide us and what children to bring. When you asked the officers to start bringing the children out, what was the response? Did they meet with? Resi- did you meet with resistance? Was it no. yeah, no problem? No. Was it no. were they she? Well, what was that response? What was that dynamic okay. like? So, so normally there's no resistance. If anything, you know, I think that sometimes we get the slow walk, uh-huh. and sometimes we'll ask for a child or we'll ask for several children, and we won't get anybody for 45 minutes. And then we have to go out and we have to say, you know what, if you don't bring us these kids, like we will have to come back another day. Like we will be documenting that you brought us no kids for 45 minutes and that we had, you know, we had asked for four, we had asked for six or whatever the number was. Um, And so we try and, you know, work with them very directly about, you know, we have a legal right to meet with our clients. You can, you you need to bring us our clients. And if you don't, we will keep coming back until you do. So just bring us our clients, let us do our job and then we'll be gone. So, um, so in, in, but I will say in response to your question, 
we did get resistance about interviewing the younger, the youngest children. So I have uh, a master's in early childhood education, licensed, you know, early childhood teacher. So I'm really, really comfortable talking to the young children. And some of my colleagues on these teams are much more comfortable with the adolescents and the teenagers. And so when I was asking for the youngest children, the uh, Border Patrol employees pushed back and they said, well, you know, you, you don't really want the two-year-olds. So I was like, yeah, I really do want the two-year-olds. And they're like, well, they're not going to be able to come on their own. And I said, okay, well, you can either take them, you know, take me to them or, you know, you can bring their caregiver with them. And that's when the children started to come in with other children. And we started to realize who their caregivers were, was when the two-year-olds and the four-year-olds started to come in. And they had, you know, bigger kids coming with them who didn't really know how to take care of them. That was how the penny dropped, that that was children taking care of toddlers, taking care of babies. Yeah. Yeah. That's a That's a... I can't begin to imagine how difficult that is to begin an interaction with another human being, a client, a patient, it doesn't matter. How do you step into that? How do you, what, what skills that you have to rely on so that you can make sure I hear these stories and I can then tell these stories properly so that we can start to change this because this is a travesty. Yeah. You know, so the, um, so let me say that as we learn during the interviews, these children have been locked up in the same room for 24 hours a day, sometimes for three and a half weeks. Like the opportunity to come out and to meet a normal person who just sits down with you and says, you know, I'm a professor of children, and in America, all children have the right to be treated well. There is a judge here in the United States who wants us to tell her how the children who come to America are being treated. You don't have to talk to me, but if you'd like to, I'd like to know, are you being treated well since you've come to America? And some children immediately start crying. And then from there, this is where I will pass you a compliment. You've obviously onboarded horrifying stories, seen horrifying, scarring things, and you've been able to relate them to us, to the world you had a thread on your Twitter feed late last night. You've shared openly and honestly with the media and that th those stories are no longer secret. Is there any sense of catharsis? Is there any sense of the needle moving because you've shared these stories of inhumane treatment and freezing temperatures and inadequate nutrition and sick children sleeping on floors I have a three-year-old. I have a lot of counter-transference as I even think this through for myself. Mm -hmm. How has that process worked for you, the other people on your team, in 
doing that sharing and being that proxy for these voices that are, are being tormented like this? Um, I, I really do think that it has been cathartic, um, as, as you suggested, you know, I, one of the coping mechanisms that some immigration advocates in Oregon taught me is to accept a client's story and to hold it gently and then to give it back to them because it doesn't belong to me and it's their story, not mine. And it's not for me to carry with me through life. And I've never been able to do it. I've never been able to entirely give their story back. So in my mind, there is a tapestry of stories woven together from the children whom I've met in these facilities and elsewhere in the work that I do. And when I'm able to do something about it, and it's like, I am a doer, I am compelled to act all day, every day, it seems like. And when you can when all you can do is take the children's stories and hand them over to somebody else, which is what we do in this case, and trust that that person will act and advocate for these children, you know, it's kind of hard <laughs> because you, you know, I, I don't have a way to, to translate them and their stories into action. But this time, because I was able to share it with a larger population to act, what I witnessed is that the world cares about these children, that there are 2,000 children currently in Border Patrol stations along our southern border, and the world cares about them. You know, it's not just we who care about them. It's not just our team who cares about them. It's not just I who care about them or immigration advocates or child advocates or the doctors or anything. It's like the whole world. Most of the people in the world who heard about these kids cared about them, which is why it went viral, which is why people are writing up eds about it. It's why, you know, so, so many members from our team have been asked to tell these children's stories. And that is so, you know, knowing that the world cares about children, even children that who are wholly unrelated to us, even children who are not citizens of our country, even children who are not yet members of our community, you know, even children who come from other countries who are other ethnic groups, speak other languages and stuff, for people to say they are still children and the world cares is something that helps me to go back and do this work, even if I never speak to the media again, just knowing that the world cares. That is, that is good to hear. And my hope is that that obviously provides you the energy to continue with the work that you're doing. And even though it's difficult work and it's hard to talk about, clearly there is a sense of urgency from you and everyone else that's been to these places and seen these things to share those stories. We know the power of story. We talk about that on this podcast a, a lot. But I want to I want to go back to the facility now. I want to go back to the uh -huh. detention center, and I because there are things that I, as a physician and as a as a human being, am I'm still really worried about. There was a story a couple of days ago that they had moved a number, if not all, of the children out of the Clint Texas Center and then sent a, a hundred or perhaps more back 
as you hear these things, I'm curious from your own experience, were there things at the center that you were not allowed to see that you asked and they said no, or people mm-hmm. that you asked and they said no, or other things that were you felt like were not open to the eyes of any aspect beyond the the authorities at the center itself? So, so yes. And I, I just, I want to go back for a moment and then I want to talk about what you just asked me. And I want to say that, it, you know, when we talk about the effects of getting these stories out, it's not just about the fact that it's cathartic for me, you know, as someone who's trying to serve these children and, and share their stories either, you know, through the case or through the public. But what I hope is that it's catalytic so that yeah. telling their stories can spark ideas in the world that might prompt people to identify ways to help these children on an individual basis and help hopefully change the course of history as to how America treats children, um, you know, in other countries in the world treat, treat children. So um, anyway, so I want to make sure that I just acknowledge you know, that it's, you know, the, my catharsis is far less significant than the fact that hopefully, you know, sharing their stories publicly will have a catalytic effect. I am, um, I am shoulder to shoulder with you there. And that's part of when I reached out to you and you being so gracious in, you know, from the time you and I connected now two or three days later in the midst of all of this, you coming on this podcast, that's the intent. It's to find that, to, to be rocket fuel for change, basically. Yes, exactly. So with regards to the facility, so we were denied everything. Like, you know, we... I did not expect they, you to say that. Yeah. You were no, denied we everything. The, yeah, no, we, we don't have rights of inspection. And so we we can't see the facility. But on Thursday, there was no running water at the facility. So mm-hmm. when I learned that, I coincidentally just happened to have to really go to the bathroom. So I asked them to take me to, you know, across the facility to find a working bathroom. And that gave me an opportunity to uh, see the facility and from the inside, because we, as I mentioned, um, that first day and, and then again, a couple of days later, drove around the facility so that I could show some of our other colleagues, you know, what we found with the middle warehouse and everything. So we, most of what we saw, we saw through the children's descriptions of what they were experiencing. And altogether, we interviewed approximately 60 children uh, of all ages, zero to 17. Actually, there was one 18-year-old there who was 17 when we interviewed him and was reclassified as an 18-year-old um, by the Border Patrol after they checked with the, the boy's um, home country who said, you know, his, his birth certificate actually indicates he's 18. So, you know, we interviewed children of all ages and their stories were chillingly consistent. In almost every single room, the children described other children or themselves having to sleep on concrete floors, cement blocks, sometimes six children to a mat, sometimes three children to, you know, one one level of the bed because it was mostly bunk beds for um, the places where there were beds. The, 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 the cells, and they're really called cells. Like the fourth day that I was there, the Border Patrol gave us a roster that was more um, comprehensive 
than they normally give us. And I don't know if it's an oversight on somebody's part or if it was an act of resistance, but they, they gave us, you know, information that they normally don't give us on the roster and, and the rooms really are cells. That's how they're listed. So the cells are, um, you know, usually a, a, a comprised of both mats that go on the floor and bunk beds. And a few cells have a couple of single beds. But, you know, for the most part, the kids are sleeping on bunk beds and mats on the floor, but never enough, according to the kids. And so most of the cells, most night, have at least some of the kids sleeping on the concrete. And they talk about the different dynamics that they've created amongst themselves in the different cells in order to figure out who gets the bed and who has to sleep on the floor. And so in one of the cells, it was whoever gets off the bed to go to the bathroom or if they get released or if they go outside, um, then somebody else gets to jump on the bed and that's their bed until they have to go to the bathroom or are released or whatever. In another cell, the person who has the bed gets to choose the person who inherits the bed once the child who has the bed is released from the facility. Um, in another cell, they described kind of cell bosses who tell people what to do and are intimidating to others. So it really was this Lord of the Flies dynamic where kids are trying to figure out how, how to run their societies that they've created in these cells for the few weeks that they're together. Um, we never saw a cell. The, the media was given a tour of the facility yesterday. I have been dying to know what the cells look like. Um, you know, when the media toured it, they weren't allowed to take any any photography. But um, I haven't talked to any of the journalists to find out what their impressions were. But, you know, I'm really curious after hearing about the cells from the children and what the dynamics are. Uh, curious to see them with my own eyes. The cells are where the children were kept 24 hours a day, seven days a week, sometimes for weeks on end. And the children would eat in there and the meals were atrocious and far too small for most of the children over the age of four, at least. And they were atrocious for all ages, but you know, the calorie count was far too low. Um, for any child over four, we've done caloric analysis and everything. And the, there were most of the cells or many of the cells had an open toilet in the room. There was um, some toilets that have walls but no doors, but you can see the person going to the bathroom from the bunk beds. The children described about how they try and protect their dignity and the dignity of one another by holding up blankets and trying to cover themselves and cover one another as they're going to the bathroom. Uh, they talked about the fact that there's no soap. Um, that they are only given soap when they take a shower. Uh, and there's a truck that was brought in. I don't know how long it's been there, but there was a truck that was brought in and the children are given a truck or a shower and access to soap for the few minutes while they're in the shower. And the children describe the showers as being very short, one to three minutes. Um, but, you know, it's, um, it's something that the showers are something that the children said they didn't get very often and you know some of them said they didn't get a shower the whole time they were there until just before our our arrival um so some of the children had gone weeks without any showers or weeks with only one or two showers they described not being able to brush their teeth for weeks at a time 
um, they described, uh, well, one of the things that we discovered is when we were calling the youngest children, we were told that a lot of them weren't available. And when we asked why, we were told that they were had been quarantined. And we started to count and eventually determined that approximately 15 children that we know of had the, had influenza and, um, and that approximately 10 of those were in quarantine right then. Five of them had been in quarantine but had since been released. Uh, we also discovered that there was a lice outbreak in one of the cells. Oh. And the six children who had been found to have lice were given shampoos. And the other children and the, um, the roster that day listed approximately 40-something children in that, in that cell – Although the children reported there were only about 25, so I don't know what the discrepancy is, but they do always have children coming and going at these facilities. In any event, the border guards gave the children two lice combs and told them to use those and pass them around to make sure they don't have lice and to you know comb their hair so they don't get the lice out, which is something you never, ever, ever do. When there is a lice outbreak, you 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 do not ask children you, you to do share it if your homes. intent is malice and your intent is to harm. You you don't do that if your intent is to preserve life and reduce suffering and keep people safe. Yeah, that's no. a, that. That but it gets that worse. Beggars words. Okay, yeah, we're ready. But it gets worse. Okay. Yeah. Because what happens, the children tell us, and we got this from multiple children across two different days, is that one of the children lost a lice comb. And when the Border Patrol found out, they hit the roof. The children said they yelled at them, and they scared them, and they made them cry, and they took took away the children's bedding and told them that they would have to sleep on the floor that night as punishment for losing the comb. So we had a little girl who was hysterical, inconsolable, who is with us in the conference room because of all of this madness, this madness of guards yelling at her for losing a comb that she shouldn't have been given in the first place. So when I go out and talk to the attorneys about what's happened. And and let me say that we heard about this incident on Wednesday and we weren't scheduled to come back to the facility on Thursday, but we arranged to come back specifically because I wanted to know if this was an empty threat and they were just trying to scare the kids or if they really were going to make a cell full of young children sleep on a concrete floor for losing a comb that they never should have given them in the first place. And in fact, when we came back the next day, we were able to confirm with several children that they did not bring the bedding back and that the children did all have to sleep on the floor, on the concrete floor that night as punishment for losing that comb. So I went to the attorney for the Border Patrol and just said, what on earth are these people thinking? Like, I hit the roof and it's like, you've got a problem here and you need to deal with it. And the attorney said, that's impossible that did not happen. And I said, how do you know it didn't happen? She says, because the border patrol agents are not allowed to give the children combs. They can be used as weapons. No border patrol agent would ever give a child a comb. And I told her, I said, I've got several, several kids yesterday who said this happened. And the reason I came back here today was to find out if they gave them the bedding bath. And I found out from several kids today that it, that they did not. So I'm telling you, 
somebody broke the rules and gave these kids the combs and then really, really mishandled it in an abusive way. You've got, got a problem. And uh, she didn't believe me. You know, I mean, it's just amazing that we can interview 60 kids, almost 60 kids, and we can tell the Border Patrol attorney what we found, and they can say, that never happened. So another example of that never happened. A little girl was brought to us on the very first day, and she had uh, another young caregiver taking care of her. And she was so dirty, so filthy dirty, as so many of these children were absolutely beautiful children, just like, you know, the, the, this really rich, thick hair and beautiful skin and beautiful eyes, but completely unwashed much of the time and clothes that they've been wearing since they came into the country and that have never been washed that were just stained and dirty with all sorts of bodily fluids and God knows what else. So she comes in and she has the most matted hair on the back of her head that I think I've ever seen on a child. And I'm just thinking as a mom, like that is going to be almost impossible to get out. That is just a mess. And so after the interview with her and she was nonverbal and clinging to her, you know, young caregiver and everything who's completely unrelated to her and kind of inherited this little girl because there was nobody else taking care of her and she was sleeping on the floor and everything. And I went and I called the border patrol and I said, this little girl needs a bath today. Look at the back of her hair. It is completely matted. It needs to be detangled. You need to condition it, detangle it, and you know, and make sure that she is washed all over. You cannot leave a little kid like this. And they said, okay, that they would give her a shower. So the next day I come back and I asked the Border Patrol, did you give that little girl a bath or a shower? And they assured me that they did. And so a little while longer, I asked them to bring her to me. And she was just as dirty, filthy as she was the day before. And her hair was just as matted as it was the day before. So I asked one of the other girls from her cell, why would the Border Patrol agent tell me that this little girl had a bath or a shower if she didn't? And they said, well, it's because they called her, called her. This is a four-year-old girl who's been so traumatized that she's nonverbal at this point. Um, presumably, you know, obviously separated from her family, although we don't know by whom and when because she's being nonverbal. And I, I, you know, and they said, you know, so they called her to take a shower and the little seven or eight year old who was taking care of her tried to get her to take a shower, but the four year old wouldn't. And I'm thinking, who is in charge here? Like, who is in charge? So, so that's an important question, Warren. Is there a sense of authority? Is there is there a structure here? Because the story's just starting, and there, there's going to need to be an accounting at some point, right? What you've seen, what you're describing, what's going into the what's going on the record, will will and will continue to engender a response from intelligent, thoughtful people around the world. This isn't going to die off. People are going to want to know first of all, make sure that these children are safe and that they don't die. And it's from what you're describing, it sounds like they're, they're at imminent risk of, of permanent physical harm, permanent you know, mental harm, God forbid, sexual abuse. You can only imagine the things that they're at risk for right now. There's going to need to be an accounting. But what you're describing sounds like a completely lawless and, and unsupervised atmosphere. Yeah. Well, the thing is, is that I don't think it's completely lawless and unsupervised 
but uh, you know because it's border patrol like this is a you know kind of militaristic organization and so there is matt harris is the chief officer or the chief agent i should say at at this facility and he seems to be very much someone who is in charge but the problem is is that this is not a child care facility that they are trying to run this facility like these are adult males and they're not they're like three-year-olds and four-year-olds and two-year-olds. It's like, no, they, you can't just give them the option of taking a shower. And if they don't take a shower, mark them down as having been given a shower. So, so I went to the attorney for the Border Patrol and said, we've got a problem. I, this little girl has matted hair and is filthy as can be, and her clothes are awful. You know, they're so dirty and unsanitary. Somebody needs to give this little girl a shower, and I'm going to be asking for her again tomorrow. Look at the back of her hair. It needs to be detangled. And so she said, I pulled the records. You know, so after after I made my complaint, she, she said, I pulled the record, and she was given a shower on this date, this date, and this date, including the date before. And it's like, that's not true. That's not true. You guys are falsifying records. And so I think that what they're doing is they're marking down, and I, and I don't even know that they really are offering showers to the kids. I don't know how long that truck with, I don't remember if the kids said there were three showers inside or six showers. So keep in mind, you know, there are 350 kids and three showers, <laughs> you know, but it's like you can't just give a four-year-old kid the option of showering or not showering for weeks at a time. It's like you've got to have the children in a setting where there is authority that's not set up for adult males, but authority which is set up for three-year-old girls, which is a completely different kind of authority and completely different types of interactions. Do they so, have access to healthcare? Are there physicians well, that come and attend them? Are there is there a mechanism by which if a child looks like they might be deteriorating that they are seen by a by a board certified licensed physician to help take care of them? Yeah, so so we don't know. And one of the things that was asked for in the TRO that was filed last night that the government opposed today is to send in teams of physicians to look at these children and determine whether or not they need medical intervention. And if they do, to connect them with the medical services that they need. One of the children that I interviewed was uh, taken, she seemed perfectly healthy when I saw her, joyful actually, when I saw her last Wednesday. And her, her uncle called me distraught this morning because she had been hospitalized. And the parents had been notified last week that she had been hospitalized, but they hadn't heard anything since then. And they had no idea how their daughter was. The last they heard, she was being taken to the hospital, but they don't know with what. They don't know whether she was released. They don't know whether she's died. So we really, really, really have a population that is at tremendous risk. And that's one of the reasons why we went to the public for the first time in over 20 years. It doesn't feel like there's any kind of end game here that can be even remotely positive, but how do we begin to move the needle away from a complete humanitarian catastrophe? Because it feels like right now we're on a runaway freight train towards exactly that. And it's unconscionable. Yeah. 
So, you know, I've been thinking a lot, a lot, a lot about this um, over this last week when there was such a, a warm embrace of these children's stories and so much compassion that poured out from all around the world. You know, and, and one of the things that I've been trying to imagine is, you know, what, what, you know, how can we crowdsource this in such a way that we are effective? Because, you know, what everybody always tells us when bad things happen in America is that you need to call your members of Congress, which you have to do without question. They care that Congress really cares what their constituents think, in, I think, in most districts. Um, but Congress is so dysfunctional right now that I think a lot of us have lost hope that they're going to provide a path forward. And some people think that the current president will provide a path forward uh, according to their values. And other people are fearful that he's going to provide a path forward according to other people's values. And, you know, and, and so what happens with the rest of us? And, I, you know, where I keep going with this is to, you know, try and crowdsource humanitarian responses in, like, I don't know, um, organic ways so that, for example, you know, last year we were able to raise over um, a quarter of a million dollars when uh, uh, I tried to recruit um, doctors and attorneys to go to the Walmart with us for an inspection and it ended up, we ended up hearing from over 8,000 people volunteered for a team of what ended up being like 30. And, um, but in that process, we were able to raise over a quarter million dollars, including this whole database that allows us to take the, the data that's provided to us by the government and to be able to analyze it, um, do this data analysis with our expert um, witnesses who then can tell us what we need to know about the population that's moving through these facilities, how long they're staying there, where they are staying, um, you know, how, what the ages are, you know, what are the trends and the ages and things like that. So, you know, I, I think that, and, and there were lots of other things that people did last year that also were, were very, um, organic and, you know, and crowdsource, such as you know, raising bail money, for example, for some of the mothers who had been separated from their children and then forced to pay $6,000, $12,000, in bail. Um, you know, and, and so I do think that we need to continue to believe that we each have the power to do something about situations like this and that it's a matter of identifying what it is. So it might be giving to the nonprofits that are providing representation to this class of children. It might be volunteering for a week with one of the many nonprofits that are down on the border providing relief and services to families that are living on the border, either separated or, you know, even if they're together, they're still facing lots of challenges when they come to America, you know, it, it might be writing an op-ed or it could be writing, you know, a post on social media or a tweet and sharing information, getting it out, talking to people who have different values and different views than you have. A recent study showed that the most powerful way to change another person's point of view is to be with them and to talk with them. And so if instead of cutting ourselves off into silos, 
in a way that we are only surrounded with people who view the same the world the same way we do, and we only talk to those people, then we're going to lose opportunities to change the world. And so we've got to get out of our comfort zone and engage with those uncles and those cousins and brothers-in-law who don't agree with us. And we need to talk through the disagreements and identify the things that we agree on and then build our dialogue and our relationships from those things that we have in common. Because we're all human beings and we all have some things in common. And we've got to figure out what they are and then use those relationships to try and change the world. That's a really elegant and thoughtful way to lay this out. And one would hope that amidst political disagreement and fiscal disagreement and all other forms of disagreement, we can agree that we have a responsibility to care for children that come into the United States, regardless of why, because they are children, Mm -hmm. we can resolve the tensions around why they came in the first place. And when did this policy start? I don't really care about any of that right now. What we need to care about is making sure that these children first don't die second are kept safe, third are able to be safely reunited with their family. That's the priority. Mm-hmm. That's what's going to keep this from being an even worse stain on the soul of our country, which I think a lot of people are already afraid is happening. I appreciate yeah. you being so forward facing with what you saw, because this is not easy work. I cannot imagine the toll it's taking on you, but I also get the sense that you're more resolved than ever to keep doing this work. Oh, Absolutely. When people are asking you for specifics, if they want to give a donation of time, of energy, of money, are there specific websites, specific organizations, specific social media platforms that you're referring them to that we can share with people who are listening to this and then they can, you know, they can then propagate? Yeah. So one of the organizations that is doing the most work to support um, families, children and families uh, along the border is um, and and that are impacted by these immigration policies is is racist. Yeah. Uh, racist. And so that's an organization that I always refer people to who want to support this work. Um, the people who want to uh, support the attorneys who are representing the separated families because there are many families that are still separated and there are children who were erroneously categorized as available for adoption and they are not. They have parents who love them and want their children back. Um, You know, that is the ACLU. And so uh, anybody who really cares about separated families should definitely make a donation to the ACLU. Um, For those who are very concerned about the detention facilities and the, um, quality of care that is lacking in those facilities, the organizations that have been working on that litigation and trying to protect children's rights in in those settings is the um, Center for Human Rights and Constitutional Law and the uh, National Center for Youth Law, which is based in San Francisco, which is, I believe, where where you're located. Um, That is also working on that case and has been since it was first brought in the 1980s. So basically what happened was Alice Boussier, who was one of my mentors, was at what was then known as the Youth Law Center. She partnered with Carlos Holquin, who was at the Center for Human Rights and Constitutional Law, and together they brought what became the Flores case, which is continuing to protect these children's rights in these centers. So I I would give to one of those two organizations if you care about the detention facilities and and what's happening to children in these facilities. Um, You know, as, as far as 
platforms. One of the places, the website that we created last summer in response to the separated children crisis was uh, reunify.org. And at reunify.org, you can sign up to get uh, email updates about what's going on, um, both with regard to immigration policies that impact children. And also, um, you can sign up to be a volunteer on one of these site visits, particularly if you are an attorney, a doctor, or a, a, a child welfare expert, um, or an interpreter. So you can donate there, you can sign up to volunteer there, and you can also get updates from the um, president and executive director, which is Peter Shea. Um, you know, for other things to do, I really, really do think it's important to stay involved politically. I know it's so hard and it's just, we all want to take a shower afterwards, but you know, there are good people that are trying to do the right thing, um, you know, by America. And the only way that we're going to be able to hold them accountable and keep them on course is if we lean in and continue to engage and pressure them to do the right thing and advocate for these kids and pass legislation that protects these children's rights. So don't give up on our Congress. Don't give up on the White House. Uh, don't give up on your local um you know, your, your local leaders, because there are a lot of local leaders that are saying things like, we will not, we will not be part of the ICE raids. I think that you and, uh, you know, your colleagues in the healthcare sector, you probably see the same thing that I do, which is when these raids are threatened, we see families who need healthcare, who need services go underground That's because correct. they're, yeah because they're afraid. And, and so it's the local leaders that are going to be able to protect those families by creating safe space for them yeah. and say, you know, that we will not carry these out in, in our city and we will protect you. You can call us and you will not be reported. So, One other source so, that I've also liked over the last just couple of days has actually been your Twitter feed, which is Child Rights Prof on Twitter, where you have been sharing some of these stories, but also sharing real-time information. And so I would refer people who who use Twitter, like Twitter, find it helpful that following following Professor Binford is absolutely the right work and, and a really important place to find more information, especially as your work continues and this, this saga continues to unravel. It's incredibly powerful, and I, for one, I'm grateful and appreciate all of the work that you and your whole team of other lawyers and the interpreters that went with you and all of the people that worked hard to make this happen are doing this And the work. doctors. And the doctors. Don't and the doctors, the doctors as well. That's right. <laughs> yes, there were doctors there. It, yeah, it, it's a team effort to, to first just begin to unroof this story and then hopefully begin to change it. I am also very grateful to you for coming on. I know you've been doing a lot of very difficult mental work around sharing the story over and over again in the media. And I really appreciate you taking the time to come on Explore the Space and yet again share this story and help us all first gather understanding and then gather strength, resources, and energy to try to make this different and make it better. Absolutely. I appreciate you, Mark, and the work that you and your colleagues do and and the opportunity to come and share with the world and with your listeners what's happening to these children. I'm hoping that people will take their stories to heart and find inspiration to go out and do good in the world so that we don't have places like Clint to, uh, to discover anymore. I agree with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Mark. Take care. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. 
Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com, and please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show, and you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.